It's good to have you here this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 2. John 2, we'll be starting in verse 13. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful and thankful for your presence, uh, for your goodness, uh, and Lord, for your authority. Lord, we know and concede your authority here in this earth. We ask that we would know, know it more fully, trust it more completely. Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, we ask that your spirit would teach our hearts and would mold us into the image of your son. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. John chapter 2, like I said, verse 13, we'll be going to 22. Uh, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it, it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? But Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Spirit of God, we invite you into our hearts the work of teaching. In Jesus' name. Okay, so, first warning, I'm going to be really rapid this morning, I think, uh, because I want to cover a lot of things into a, this amount of time, you know, um, and, and uh, so I might talk overly fast today. Um. The first thing that I want to address, I guess, is, is how we should read the Gospels, or at least partially how we should read the Gospels. And I think as we go through the rest of the, the, my message this morning, it'll, it'll make more sense why I'm going to take the time to do this. I have this really firm belief that um, you're all really very smart and and completely and 100% capable of reading the Bible and knowing what it says and teaches uh, without me, right? And one of, one of what I feel is my callings is that, that I believe that part of my job is not to just to preach to you or to read the Bible with you and then tell you what I think it says, but to, to equip you and, and help you to be able to do this on your own, to pick up the Bible and to read it and to understand it. And, and, and to go through it by yourself or in a, a, 
small group or with your families or whatever it might be, you know, without the need of having me, right, or any preacher for that matter. The Bible is complex, right? And it's made up of it's made up of 66 different different writings. We call them books, but they're not really all books. They're all different writings. The New Testament is primarily letters. Even the Gospels really have some form of letters in them. Um, and then the Old Testament has prophecy and, and law and, and poems and all. So the Bible is this complex book, and and every single every single book that you come come to, every single different writing that you come to, you really do need to read with a slightly different motivation or a slightly different kind of attitude or understanding of what that particular genre is. And I talk about this all the time, so this isn't necessarily new to you. The Gospels look to us like a historic record, right? Like if we were to go, what is a gospel? What kind of writing is a gospel? We go, oh, it's probably a history because it tells the story of Jesus. The four gospels tell the story of Jesus. But the gospels are not history, okay? The the gospels are not history. And the reason why I say that, or the reason why I say that bluntly that way is because when we think of history, we think of a particular thing. We think of a particular way of writing, a particular uh, method of getting information across that the Gospels are just not as interested in. Yes, there is uh, history being recounted to us, but it's not written as a history. If you were to read a history book today, you're probably going to read about details and about events and about different things that happened at different times. And really, you're going to read them in chronological order. And that, for us today, matters. So if you're a historian or if you're a historical writer, you're not going to just write things in whatever order you think is right. You're going to write things in uh, in, in a chronologically correct way because that's part of the makeup of history today. In the first century, for the Jewish people, that is simply not the case. That's not what they're concerned with. That does not mean that the Bible is not, uh, is not chronological or there's not parts of the Bible that are chronological. It does not mean that the, that the writers of the, of the New Testament or even the Old Testament, for that matter, don't care that one thing happens after the next thing after the next thing, but they are willing to sacrifice chronology to make a theological point. Okay. This is really a without debate understanding of what a gospel is. Now, we can read the Bible... And we can read it as if, or let me say that in a different way. We can read the Gospels and read it as if it's in a chronological order. And for the most part, it's not going to harm our theology. It's not going to harm what we believe. We're still going to get to Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection, and that's, and that's good. And again, it's, it's not really that, that order of events doesn't matter, because there are definitely times where order of events does matter. So say the cross and the resurrection. Jesus didn't raise before he died. It wouldn't really make sense. So chronology matters in some places, but is sacrificable to make a theological point. Now, I bring this up because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all write from a different theological perspective, a different theological perspective. The, the, the most common understanding of how the Gospels were formed is that Mark writes first. Mark, the gospel writer, writes first. And he writes pretty much just in a, I'm going to get you the story. I'm going to preserve the story kind of a way. Yes, he has his kind of 
theological inclinations and things like that, but it's a lot less obvious what his main point is other than I want to tell you the story. And then what they think happens, maybe within the next 10 years, is that Matthew and Luke at some point come across a copy of Mark, and then they use Mark as kind of the foundation of their gospel story. And it's not a different gospel story. It's a different perspective of the same story. So what I mean by that, so Mark kind of writes uh, kind of with the purpose of giving that information. But Matthew, he writes to a primarily Jewish audience and is much more concerned with showing that Jesus is the Messiah from the Old Testament. So Matthew, more than all the other other gospel writers, says things like, and Jesus did this to fulfill this prophecy, because his theological perspective is a Jewish perspective that he wants to make sure the Jewish people in his churches, the churches that he is a part of, can can hear that and know that and be and be and, and be confirmed in that, right? And so that's kind of his main perspective. Luke is a little bit different. He's writing to probably a more uh, a more Gentile audience, so he's less concerned about the fulfillment of the prophecies because those people just don't they weren't grown, grown up taught that and all that kind of stuff. So Luke is, he's, he's a little bit different. He's more concerned about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit was doing uh, through, the, through the life and ministry of Jesus. John is just fundamentally different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call them the synoptic gospels. The synoptic really just means uh, the, the general whole of something. And so what most, most scholars believe that Matthew, Mark, and Luke is probably the, the more, the more, chronologically accurate versions. Uh, and, and they're kind of building out this bigger picture, and they're much more similar. One of the reasons why we think that Matthew and, and Luke have a copy of Mark is because there's many direct quotations between those three, whereas John is different. John has a different chronological order. John has a different perspective. John is writing to tell us that Jesus is the Son of God, and he and he is also primarily concerned with the, the the sermons or the times when Jesus speaks to the people. So most of John is Jesus speaking. And yes, lots of the other gospels are Jesus speaking as well, but just not at length like in John. Now, why this matters is because as we come to the four gospels, we find that there are actually very few stories that all four of them have in common. We have death, resurrection of Jesus. We have the feeding of the 5,000 and the cleansing of the temple. It's about it. These are the only stories that all four Gospels have in common, I I think. Now I'm I'm questioning whether that's right or not. I'm I'm pretty confident I might be missing one. Anyway, I should have confirmed that before coming up here. My point still remains. A very relatively small number of stories that all four gospel writers have in common. And what we understand by that is that those are the stories that, that impacted everybody in the early church. Because all four gospels were written for different regions and, and were writing down stories that they already knew and were sharing. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the cleansing of the temple. However, Matthew, Mark, and Luke put the cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus' ministry, one of the last things that he does. So he enters into Jerusalem right before the week of his death, and there's the triumphal entry. He goes and he, he takes a little bit of a nap, and then he goes back to the temple, and he cleanses the temple. And this is the thing that sparks the religious leaders to put him to death. 
in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John, this happens at the very start of his ministry. It's a polar opposite, where Jesus goes into the temple and, and cleanses the temple at the start of Jesus' ministry. So we can do three things with this. Sort of, three things with this. Number one, we can say that it happened twice. We can, we can believe that it happened twice. We can, we, can, we can elevate the concern for chronology to the point where we say, well, it, it happens in two different places, so it, it must have happened twice. Now, you probably already can guess what, where my opinion is on that. Um, I don't think that it happened twice. It's okay if you have to believe that, because it doesn't actually matter. My reason for thinking that it doesn't happen twice is because if it happened twice, and it was such an important story that all four gospel writers write it down, if it's up there with the feeding of the 5,000 with Jesus' death and resurrection, then it obviously meant, so why wouldn't the gospel writers at least mention that it happened that second time? Especially John, who puts it at the beginning, wouldn't you think he would have also said, oh, and Jesus went into the temple again and cleansed it again, because they're doing the same things again. It's possible, it's possible, but because we know that the gospel writers are not are not as concerned with chronological order as, as maybe we would be, and we would recognize that, that when they deviate from that chronological order, they're making a theological point. We can look at this maybe a little bit different. So then the, the further thought is, okay, what are the other ways that we could think about it? We could think that, it, that John is right and that the other three gospel writers moved it to the end, or we could think that the other three gospel writers get it right and John moves it. Now, my opinion is that it happens at the end because it's what sparks the, the, the religious leaders to, to put Jesus to death. Yes, they were already mad at him, but this is kind of the last straw kind of a thing. And John makes a pretty serious theological point with this story that is not made by the other three gospel writers. Now, I know that that's a, a lot to consume, and, and, and I want to invite you to have a conversation with me if that puts you at unease because... I love that conversation. So please come talk to me if, if you want. Or if you just think you should. So let's talk about the story. The cleansing of the temple is one of those stories that you kind of have to have a little bit of, of knowledge of what's going on. So in, uh, in Exodus... The people of Israel, they leave the land of Israel, or leave the land of Egypt, excuse me. They leave the land of Egypt uh, because God has sent now the 10th plague, and the 10th plague is the, is the death of all the firstborn males in the, in, in, in the region, in the, in the land. And the people of Israel, they're supposed to put the blood on the doorposts from the land, the sacrificial lamb, and that covers them, and, and the angel of death passes over them. That's where the name Passover comes from. We learn in verse 13 that this is the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So this is the event where they're supposed to, they're supposed to celebrate with the feast, uh, the, the, the exodus out of the land of Egypt, the, pr the protection that God put on his people out of the land of Egypt. Now, when, when this, this feast is first given, so they, they have the Passover in Egypt, but then they exit, and while they're out in the wilderness, God gives them the law, and one of the laws that he gives is you need to have this perpetual feast, and what you need to do is you all need to come to the tabernacle and worship God together. And so there's this, there's this command from God to, for the, all of Israel to come together to this one place and to celebrate and worship God together. And this works while it's the tabernacle and the majority or all of the Israelites are within you know, a couple hours walking distance from the tabernacle. But as the people settle into the land, 
as the Assyrian uh, the, the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom and then the Babylonians conquer the rest and scatter the people of Israel are now all over the world, right? So many hundreds of miles away from the temple, but yet they're still called to come to this place and to worship God together. And they're also still called to come to this place and make sacrifices of, of pure and unblemished animals that they are supposed to presumably bring with them from the outer reaches of, of at, at this point, the Roman Empire. So they could be coming anywhere from, they could be coming 500 miles away, and they're going to be predominantly walking, maybe riding on some donkeys or whatever, but you're not going to put your oxen on the donkey and, 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 and carry it so it doesn't get hurt. So this becomes an issue. This becomes an issue for the people of Israel. And so one of the things that happened, and it happened out of practicality, is that instead of saying you can bring your, you need to bring your, your pure unblemished animal from way far away, once, once you get here, you purchase one, you buy one. Now, this is a little bit of a workaround, and maybe we could argue that that's not right to begin with, but I think that this is an acceptable practice because it's still the sacrifice of your wealth and that's really what a sacrifice, the sacrifice is supposed to be. And so, so this is kind of a, a logical thing to do. And, and okay, and, and these people are going to come, but pretty soon greed gets in the way, right? Because we all know what money does to, to us, and, and, and greed gets in the way. And pretty soon we can start making money off of this, and the, and the temple can make some some money. We can worship God with the money that we're going to make, oh, this, right? So we can start to see that. And as, as history goes on, what eventually starts to happen is, is you are no longer purchasing the animal from somebody who is just part of the, the city of Jerusalem, but now it becomes part of the temple. And what happens, so the temple is built, the temple is built to kind of have concentric growth from the most important place out to the, to, not that it's not important, but to the least important place. And it, so it starts with the Holy of Holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to sit. And, and the Ark of the Covenant is God's throne. Like, that's what it is. It's, it's you know, like, if you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Indiana Jones, who's searching for the, the Ark of the Covenant. And, you know, it's, it's the, the wings are out like this. It's probably not accurate. The wings are probably like this. This is the back, and this is God's armrest. Because God is literally supposed to be sitting on this seat. That's why it's called the mercy seat, because that's where God is supposed to sit. So God is dwelling in the holiest of holies. And that's why the high priest is only supposed to go in there once a year, and they're supposed to do this crazy ritual to make sure that they're ceremonially clean and, 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 and upright and holy and, and righteous to be able to enter that. And if they don't, they're going to die. And, right? So this is Holy of Holies. Outside of that is the holy place. And this is where like the, the table is and the incense altar and the, and the candle and, and, the, and the sweet aromas to the Lord. And this is where they would put the bread offerings or the, or the grain offerings and that kind of stuff. This is where the priests are pretty regularly. And then outside of that, you have the courtyard. And the courtyard... In the courtyard is the altar, the altar where you're going to make predominantly make all of your offerings. You're going to bring your cattle or your, your oxen and your, and your goats and your pigeons and all this kind of stuff, and you're going to sacrifice them in there. The only people who are allowed in this area are Jews. Okay, So you have God alone and very, very seldom the high priest, and then you have the priests, and then you have the Jews, and then one more side outside of that is the court for the Gentiles. Now, what we learned from Josephus is that all this stuff that was happening, all this sale that was happening, is happening in the court of the Gentiles. This is the one and only place that anybody who is not ethnically Jewish can come and worship God. And it is being taken up with the Wayne County Fair. 
right? Everybody's been to the Wayne County. Well, most of us have been to the Wayne County. You're in Wayne County. You've been to the Wayne County too. If you haven't, I'm shocked. I'd like to find out your secret. But it's chaos, right? It's chaotic, especially you go to the sale barn or whatever, whatever the barn is, barns are called. This, when, they're, when they're selling the cows, it's loud and it's chaos. You're like, can you imagine having a church service in that setting? No, it's crazy, right? It would be, it would be crazy. Some of you might remember the last time I preached this just a couple years ago. I brought in a, in, a, in a cart and I smashed it into the seats to try to distract you. I'm not going to do that today. But it's, that's, that's what's happening, right? And so all of this kind of starts from probably good motivations, and it just moves and moves and moves. We learn in the other Gospels that it's not just a, a, an equal exchange, but it's, a, and it's, it's an exchange that's, that's kind of theft, and, and, and you're taking advantage of these people who have traveled extremely long distances. It's probably the only time in their whole entire lives they're going to be able to be at the temple to worship God in this extremely important and intimate way for a Jewish person. And... And Jesus comes in and he's like, this is not going to continue. It's just not right. And so Jesus, in John's account, Jesus makes, he makes a whip out of cords, we're told. He makes a whip out of cords. He goes in. He, he drives the cattle and the, and the sheep out of the temple. He overturns the table where the, where the money exchangers are going. So if you lived in... In Rome, for example, and you travel to Jerusalem, you need to exchange your Roman money for temple money. And, and so exchange that money, and they're getting a hefty fee for that. And he throws that over. He says, this is not right. He turns to the people who are selling the pigeons, right? The, the people who are selling the pigeons. And he says to them, he says to them, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So if you were, if you were relatively wealthy, you were required to make a relatively big sacrifice, something like a, a, a lamb or a goat or an oxen, depending on what sacrifice you were making and, and if you had the money. But if you didn't have the money, which is predominantly most of the people, if you didn't have enough money or you didn't own a goat or an oxen or whatever to make the sacrifice, then you were supposed to sacrifice a pigeon. So the people who are sacrificing pigeons are the poorest among the people, and they're supposed to be free because pigeons aren't, aren't really good for food and, and, and meat. Yes, you can eat pigeon meat. It, it's possible, but it's not its main role. It's just there. And so there's lots of pigeons. They're easily accessible. They're not supposed to be a financial burden for the people who cannot afford to have a big sacrifice. And these things are in being sold for profit. And so Jesus looks at them, and he's probably the most mad at them. He's like, get these things out of here. I'm not going to let my father's house be a house. Now, before we go further, let's talk about what the story shows us. Number one, the first thing is that we need to be, we need to be abundantly aware of the times and the ways that we create distractions to the worship of God. We need to be abundantly aware of the times where we are a distraction to the worship of God, both for ourselves and for other people, especially those who are not already a part of the community of believers. This is one of the reasons why we try to have the music just a little bit louder. We dim the lights because we don't want people to think, oh, everybody's looking at me while I'm singing. Or, or if, the, if the music is maybe a little quiet and then you start to sing out, you can hear yourself. And you're like, oh, I better not sing out because everybody around me will hear me. Everybody around you wants to hear you, probably. 
But that's why we kind of raise it just a little bit so that you would feel comfortable singing out and praising the Lord without any cares about that's Now, it's not a perfect system, but that's kind of why we do it. We try to get rid of those distractions. One of the reasons why we want to kind of finish this room is because you come into this nice place, it looks nice and new, and then all of a sudden you're like, they run out of money? And, it's, and, and it might not be a big deal, and it's probably, for most of us, it's probably not a big deal. But then that's a question that's a distraction. And so let's eliminate the distractions. Let's get rid of those distractions. And so that's kind of, we have to first, let's be, let's be zealous, to use the word from the, from, the, from the story. Let's be zealous for the worship of God, especially when it comes to people who are not part of the church, especially for those people. The other thing that we have to we we can learn is is about about Christ's anger, right? Jesus is angry in this story, and Wes and I we were talking about it this weekend, and he he mentioned uh, something from Tim Keller, and Tim Keller talks about how all of our emotions, right, all of our emotions are given to us by God for a particular purpose. Every emotion that we have, none of our emotions are from Satan. Nothing is from Satan. Everything is from God, and only only thing that Satan can do is corrupt and. and and invade. So, so even our anger at times is is not just not just okay, but it's right and godly to be angry at times. Jesus is angry because because the the people were corrupting the temple worship and 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 hindering people from ever worship God, and so he's rightly angry. But one of the things that we get in John that we don't see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the patience and the purpose that Jesus has in his anger. Jesus doesn't just fly off the handle, which is something that maybe we can we can think, that Jesus walked into the temple and went, I can't believe this is happening, rah, and threw the tables over. That's not what Jesus does. And actually, in the other three Gospels, Jesus comes into the temple, sees what's going on, goes home and, and goes to bed, and then comes back and deals with it. The same thing is true here. Jesus takes some cord and he makes a whip, and that takes time, and he's thinking through what he's going to do, and then he acts on his anger. Anger isn't the bad thing. Uncontrolled anger is, or really unrighteous anger is as well. Jesus has a reason to be angry. Now, that's not the point of the story, but I think those are things that we can observe and, and apply. So what is the point of this story? One of the things I think I've mentioned already in, in our time in John, but, but we'll certainly mention it again as we go through John, is one of the things that we that we uh, can see with the disciples' input is often what we should either learn or not believe, right? So when the disciples speak and are learning something positive, we're supposed to be thinking that. But if they're doing something bad or, or misunderstanding, we're supposed to realize that's a misunderstanding. When, when Peter is scolded by Jesus for saying, I'm not going to let you die. He's like, no, I have to die. That's wrong. And Jesus teaches us that that's wrong. Here, we learn what we're supposed to get from this story. It says in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Your house being the temple. Zeal for your house will consume me. That's a reference from Psalm 69.9, if you want to look it up. Zeal for your house will consume me. Will consume me. One of the mistakes that we can make as Christians is that we can believe because Jesus has made has made it different for us as Christians than it, than it is for, for for Jews of the Old Testament. Because it's different, that means that everything that happened in the Old Testament was is is no longer relevant, or it's it's just nothing, right? 
we can we can we can discount or we can think things like Jesus came to get rid of the law or to get rid of the sacrifices to get rid of, right but we learn in the Bible that Jesus does not come to abolish the law but he comes to fulfill the law and we see in this passage even though in just a few short years Jesus is going to be the final sacrifice eliminating the need for us to make sacrifices in the temple to worship God through the act of sacrifice Jesus is going to eliminate the need for us to do this and even though Jesus is going to do this doesn't mean that he doesn't see the value and the purpose of those sacrifices. Jesus is still zealous for, for the temple and the work of the temple because it's only in the temple and in the work of the temple that we can understand what Jesus' sacrifice means. So we cannot, because we don't sacrifice like they did before, we cannot think to ourselves that it's no longer important or no longer relevant or we shouldn't even talk about it, we shouldn't even preach about it, we shouldn't even study it. Absolutely not. No, we should have that same zeal for the for the worship of God, for the temple, for the actions that happened before. Yes, no, or excuse me, no, we're not gonna we're not gonna make sacrifices anymore. We're not gonna sacrifice because we already have the sacrifice, the perpetual sacrifice of Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean that what happened in those in the temple, what happened in those sacrifices, doesn't have value for how we understand who Jesus is. Zeal for your father's house, for your house, will consume you. But then there's one more step. There's one more step. This is a big one. And this is why I think this happens later. And John moves it, sacrifices chronology, chronology, for the sake of a theological point. This is why I think this. It says in verse 18 and following, it says, The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. Now, again, we've got to go back to the Old Testament to understand what's going on here. In the Old Testament, we had, we had a bunch of different kinds of people. You had the priests, you had the kings and the rulers, the, the judges and that kind of stuff, and also the prophets. Now, prophets, the prophets' primary task was to do pretty much what I do, to, to take the word and to apply it to today, to apply it to our lives today. So, so I perform one duty of a prophet. But another thing that the prophets did was that they would do so in advance of things happening. So when the Babylonians were coming to conquer the, the southern kingdom of, of Judah, many of the prophets were saying, they're coming, they're going to destroy us, God says. right? And the people were supposed to hear this. But what God commands the people in the law to do with the prophets is any time a prophet comes to speak, the prophet is supposed to give a sign that is outside of themselves to prove that they're from the Lord, that they're speaking from the Lord, so that not just any Joe Schmo can come and say whatever they think, right? So like Elijah, he's, he calls, he prays for the rain to stop, and it's three and a half years of drought, and then he prays for the rain to come again, and then there's the, and then there comes the rain. That's a natural sign that Elijah couldn't do, but God could do, and so it's proof that Elijah is coming from the Lord. That's what they're, and that's what they're asking. They're like, listen, you're doing this crazy stuff, you're, you're performing this crazy act, which is very much a, a prophetic kind of act, right? Which is what the, the prophets would often do really weird and crazy things to try to make their points. Why should we believe you? Right? It's ultimately what this is. Why should we believe you? 
And so Jesus tells them the sign. He says, he says I'm going to destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to, I'm going to raise it up. Destroy the temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it. Which is exactly what Jesus does, by the way. He does destroy the temple in its work, in its purpose. And he raises up three days later, and he becomes the temple where we serve and worship him. Right? There is a change that happens there. But this is the sign that Jesus gives to give credence to everything that he's about to say, everything that he's about to do, and everything that we're supposed to believe in him upon. So Jesus tells us that when I die and I raise, it will give credence and authority to everything that I'm about to say. So John moves this from the end to the beginning so that we get this theological truth so that as we read through this story, we can go, Jesus isn't just some crazy person, but he's died and raised and shown us that he is from the Lord and that his work is, is from the Lord. It's a wonderful addition to this story that establishes for us as we go through John's gospel, especially as we go through John's gospel and we see Jesus talking a lot, that we don't have to sit here and go, is he, isn't he, is he, isn't he? No. The sign God has given us to give credence and authority to Jesus, we already know has taken place. And we know it because we've read the Bible before. They know it because John's not writing to people who don't know the story. And so he's reiterating it here for us. And even in verse 22, we see, G we see John telling us that this is how we should think with the disciples, right? He says, and when, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered this and they believed him, believed the scripture and believed the word that Jesus had spoken. It's because Jesus has died and raised that we can believe the words that he is about to speak. It's because Jesus has died and raised that we can believe in the goodness of God that Jesus tells us. It's because Jesus has died and raised that we can put our trust and our hope that Jesus is the Messiah to come to take away the sins that we have committed. It's because Jesus has died and raised that we can trust wholeheartedly his provision, his protection, his love, his compassion for each and every one of us. It's because Jesus has died and raised that we gather together and worship. It's because Jesus has died and raised that we believe in his word, we believe in the scripture, and we know his saving work. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are we are so grateful for the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're so grateful that this is the payment for our sin. We're so grateful that it is the freedom from the bondage of this life and of our flesh and of all that holds us down. We are so grateful, Lord, and filled with praise and adoration of who you are for all of this truth. But also, Lord, we are grateful that this is a sign to us to give credence and authority to who your son was, not just in his death and resurrection, but also in his life and in his ministry and all the things that he has said. We're thankful that the, that the death and resurrection of your son Jesus gives, gives authority to the word of God to this, this book that we believe contains it, that teaches and molds us and, to help, and helps us understand that you're a God of, of restoration and, and, and you're a God of, 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 of righteousness and holiness and you call us to the same. We thank you, Lord, that, that your son died and, raised and rose 
so that we could believe all of this like your disciples. We thank you, Lord. We thank you. And we praise you. And we extol you. It's in Jesus' precious name.